Amen. <laughs> oh. You know, sometimes I, I sing, and we sing these hymns, and it goes into my, goes through my mind, as it did actually with the hymn this morning, as well as with this one this evening. It's just a relief, a relief in my heart that this is your God, that it's not me trying to make sure these things happen for you, that I, it's not on me to make sure that I am every help for you in sorrow. And when the storms overtake you, that it's me that's there to be your pilot, but it's the Lord. The same one who's there for me is there for you. Just as fully as he is there for me, he is there for you. And so we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. It's not hallelujah, what an elder. <laughs> hallelujah, what a Savior, what a friend. And we do try to minister to your hearts, but he alone can truly truly come to you. He would have you learn that he alone is the one that can help. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, beloved. Turn there, please, in the Word of God. As we continue through the Gospel of Luke, we come to, we continue, I should say, through this portion of the Lord's Word. Luke chapter 11. We're in the Lord's Prayer, and my aim is to get through this in five messages through the Lord's, through the, I should say, the section on prayer, that is the opening 13 verses that is before us. So we're in message number three, and we want to read again from verse one, and pay attention to the Word of God. These words are so familiar, and yet when I prepare for them, I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? I need more time, I need more time to help bring light and clarity here, but we're doing our best and trust that God will minister to you. Luke chapter 11, let's hear the Word of God as we read from verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll end our reading there, verse 4, since our focus tonight will be on verses 3 and 4, the Lord helping us. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Let's ask Him again for His help in this moment in time. God, we do raise our 
hallelujahs tonight. Thou art a great Savior. Thou art a great friend. And I pray that we would, we would learn, relearn, and keep on learning that Thou art the one that we need. Lord, help me to be a preacher that lifts up the greatness and the glory of Thy person and to do it in such a way that men and women are attracted and desires to run to Jesus Christ. So forgive us where we fall short in the dross in our sermons and grant that there would be edification even in the message this evening. So take it from being a mere sermon, grant it to be a word in season, fitly spoken by the help of the Holy Ghost. Extend thy kingdom, build thy church, save the lost, edify and speak to thy people and accomplish things that thwart and frustrate the enemy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the dangers in addressing you on the Lord's Prayer, of course, is the knowledge that we have that you're so familiar with that there's no real point in giving much time to the various statements and petitions that are uttered by our Lord in answer to the desire of this particular disciple that asks, teach us to pray. But I thought it necessary for us to just slow down a little and give consideration to this language in a way that I trust at the very least is somewhat helpful to you. It's amazing that our Lord would give us such a prayer as this, that He would stipulate in very clear language after this manner pray and instruct our hearts rather than just saying, look, you know, the Spirit's going to teach you whatever way to pray. You can just, you can depend on the Holy Spirit. You don't need me to put words in your mouth. You don't need me to, to tell you a certain form of prayer. Just, just pray whatever in your, whatever's in your heart. Our Lord understands our weakness, and He understands that we need some guidance when it comes to the matter of addressing God. And so He is not hesitant to help His disciples when they come seeking for the instruction as they do here in Luke chapter 11. So He doesn't hesitate, nor will He hesitate when we ask Him for help. When you ask Him for help, and for example, if you're to get before God with this language before you, and yes, you may rehearse it as it is given, but also praying that God would teach your heart how to build upon the petitions, how to apply them and integrate them into the various needs of your life and the burdens of your heart, how to incorporate them, how each petition in some way reflects other concerns you have in your life, and how in which uh, the, the, the real concerns of your life can be reflected in this language, and you can, you can pray, yes, these words, but you can move into the specifics of your life as you understand the full depth of each petition that is here. The Spirit can teach you that. The Spirit will, and part of my effort has been to help you understand a little more fully what these petitions mean so that you, you understand. So when, I, so when I pray, for example, for someone to be saved or whatever, that fits here or that fits there. That's part of the desire of our hearts. As I've said already, this is the third message. Our first message looked at verse 1, where we considered the chief example of prayer. Our Lord Jesus is that example. It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. He is the example. Our Lord is the example, the chief example of prayer. 
But we have moved into the second part, which is the central elements of prayer, verses 2 through 4, which make up the Lord's Prayer as it is commonly referred to by many and has been for a long time. The central elements of prayer. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at a number of these already. We looked, first of all, at the relationship. Relationship is a central element of prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. That's where it begins, and there is much encouragement to be drawn from that. There is also reverence. Hallowed be thy name. There's also reason here. Thy kingdom come. This is driving the desire for something to come to pass into this world and be manifested more fully in our day as well as in future days. There's also responsibility. Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. We're longing that as God's will is performed perfectly in glory by the angels, by glorified saints, so it might be done by us fallen creatures here on the earth as well. We have a responsibility, and we beg God for strength to see His will done in heaven or on earth as it is in heaven. So we're continuing through these petitions, and we might say simply that what we've looked at so far are the Godward petitions. The Godward petitions precede what we might determine are the manward petitions. Now, when I say that, it creates a a great disparity in significance. And the danger is that we imagine, well, all the important prayers and petitions have been dealt with already two weeks ago. Now we're coming to the mundane. And that would be wrong. These petitions that we will look at tonight are equally important. They are more, the ones we've looked at are more Godward for sure. But as these other petitions, while they may be manward, they very much reflect the desire of our God in various areas. And so they are just as legitimate, and we might say just as important. The fulfillment, we might say, of the latter petitions aids to the answer of the former. As God gives us day by day our daily bread, as He forgives us as we forgive everyone that's indebted to us, as He leads us not into temptation and delivers us from evil, something of what has already been prayed is being worked out. And yet these petitions stand alone in significance as well. So we move on then to uh, what, we, what is the fifth uh, element of prayer, reliance. Reliance. Look at verse 3. Give us day by day our daily bread. On the surface of it, it's not too complex. I think most of you may give a very uh, fair stab at explaining this to someone who might say, well, what exactly does that mean? And yet it contains a word that isn't all that clear, and there's been much debate over. It's only found twice in the New Testament, once here and once in the corresponding passage in Matthew chapter 6, where we have the same prayer given by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is this word that is translated here, daily. Give us day by day our daily bread. It's not found anywhere else. It's not found in other Greek writings. And so men have been left to conjecture what really is meant here. And it has led to all sorts of views. Maybe it has this sense of this need for daily Eucharist. There always needs to be the presentation of the Eucharist. That's the idea. It's this 
It's that form of bread that must be put before the people. And so certainly the Roman Catholic Church has run with that with their daily masses. There are also other ideas as far as spiritualizing it. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread from heaven, and so on and so forth. This, this, these are the ideas that some have uh, come to try to understand, well, well daily, what, what is that really saying? What, what significance is being placed on that? They don't really know what the Word is saying. But I think the translation is legitimate. And the meaning is relatively simple. It has the idea, we might say, of, of that which occurred in the wilderness, where the Israelites were taught to depend on God on a daily basis. Give us what we need sufficient for the day. Our God may have, if He had so chosen, He may have laid up a storehouse, as He did when Joseph was in Egypt, a storehouse that would provide for people for years. He could have done that for the Israelites. He could have shown something of His omnipotence in a once-for-all fashion and given them this great abundance of, of corn or whatever and they would never have to ask for it anything ever again. They would just see that abundance is there. All our needs are met. God has answered prayer, and, and we don't have to look for anything more. All that we need is there. But instead, God purposefully made His people to understand He longs for them to grasp that they should have a daily reliance. And so every day, barring the Sabbath, they were to go out and gather the manna. And their prayer, therefore, was simply that give us what we need for the day. Supply our need for the day. And that essentially is what the Lord is putting before His disciples. Pray this way. Pray for the needs to be met for the day. For God to provide what you need for the day. He would have us then be dependent, be reliant. And when you read this, give us day by day our daily bread, as we think of it in terms of, well, why is our Lord teaching us, us this? Why, why would He place an emphasis right here? To what end should He give us, or for what purpose should He give us daily bread? We learn that it is our God's intention to remind us that there is an ongoing usefulness in the life of every believer, in the existence of every believer. He intends for us, insofar as He puts what we need daily before us, He intends for us also to be useful to Him on a daily basis. Everything this, about this prayer is, is Godward. It is this desire, this longing for His name to be held, His kingdom to become, His will to be done. So when we move into what appears to be more mundane language, we still must ask this question, to what end? If it is all about Him, or should I say, since it is all about Him, and it is, it is. Don't be, don't be frightened of language like that. Don't be frightened that, that God's primary goal is the glorification of His own name. He wouldn't be God if it was otherwise. God's primary motivation is the magnification of Himself. So to what end then should we pray, give us this day, or give us day by day our daily bread? And it is this, at the, at the very outset, understanding that He will sustain that which is 
to live for His glory. It's good for, for all of us to remember that. I think sometimes older believers might forget it. You know, I, I think there's a danger in old age when you get to a point where, where you feel like you're, you're not really useful anymore. You're not serving the same way, or you don't feel the same significance in your life. But while God puts provision before you daily, it is because you still serve a purpose to glorify Him. You do. And I, I know the struggles of age. I understand. I mean, I don't know them personally, but I, I can understand it. I can understand the rationale. I can understand the fears. I can understand the arguments. I can understand why, amidst the weakness of the body, you could come to a conclusion that my time is done, my purpose, my purpose has failed in terms of not failed in the way you, you may immediately mean or think, but failed in the sense it's come to a termination, it's come to an end. I understand why you would come to that conclusion, but, but it is not true. It struck me as I, was, as I was meditating on this that as long as he is sustaining an answer to this prayer, it is that we might glorify him. And he has purposes for us to continue. And it's the same, of course, for the young people as well. He has given you your daily bread so that you might glorify Him. Don't forget it. But there are two things I wanted to think about in relation to this, considering this petition, give us day by day our daily bread. First of all, the fragility of the body. The fragility of the body. In praying, give us, give us. There's a recognition of, as we've already put it, reliance, or we might say dependence. Give us. We need God to give us. We need our Father to give us the things that we require to live. The Bible is very clear that all creatures in the world are dependent on God, not just us, not just the elect, not just all men but all creatures. In Psalm 104, you may make a note of this if you don't want to turn to it, but Psalm 104, verse 21 says, The young lions roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. And verse 27 following, it continues, and it's been speaking of various creatures of the sea, and it said, These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them they gather. That thou givest them, they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Creatures are dependent on God. But as we see the dependence and we believe the dependence of all creatures upon God, so it is pressed upon us here that we too are dependent. This, these bodies of ours, the faculties that we possess, are not strong enough for us to rely upon them alone. 
The petition then reveals our natural poverty. Without God, we have nothing. Without God sustaining us, we, we have nothing. There's a fragility in our existence. And so it exposes the folly of human strength to address our fundamental needs. We might imagine that we possess the ability, we possess the strength, we possess the skill, we possess the technology to sustain our own existence. But we do not. And we have reached a stage where we have become so... We, we, we really are not acquainted with want. We've gone a few generations, let's say, where we really do not have a keen awareness of what it's like to experience want. There are certain signs even in the stock market that are making some feel a sense of triggering 1929 all over again. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I've certainly read it and seen people refer to it in that way. And that was certainly a season of want. We've come to a point, however, where we imagine that we... It's, it's so far removed from us. And we think, well, well, look at how we can manufacture food. Look at the size of our fields. Look at all of that. Well, let me just, <laughs> let me just pause right here and, and talk suggestively, without knowing all the details. But certainly, there are international interests in the bread-making, let's say, of America. That is to say, there are people that aren't necessarily, uh, f- first and foremost, friends of the United States of America that hold power over much of the land or a lot of land in, that is here that produces the corn and so on in this country. And as I was thinking this week, I thought, you know, how easy it would be for foreign powers, corporate interests, and all the rest of it, while it's there, it's being prioritized to go to other nations. Famine can come in all sorts of ways by all sorts of means. It may be the shortage of it, or it may be just the fact that you can't get access to it. God has His ways. And it ought to scare us half to death that we have come to a point where we don't feel a sense of real humility that without God, there's no food. There's no provision. And He may take it away in all sorts of forms. Again, read your history. Look at the fact that there have been lands that have been prosperous, that have fed abundantly their, their nation and beyond. And today you can barely grow anything. Things can change. They can change. And our God would have us understand the fragility of our body. We are not as strong as we imagine ourselves to be. And our Father in heaven does not want any of His children to outgrow our need for Him. He does not desire us to get dependent. You see this so much in relation to war. Psalm 33, verse 16, There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. 
Psalm 60 verse 11, give us help from trouble for vain is the help of man. This is understood. The psalmist got this, especially in times of warfare. Deliverance does not come by mere strategy and tact and the numeracy of the the multitude of our soldiers and the, the, the numbers of our horses and all the rest of it. We must have deliverance from God. So we are told again by the psalmist, Psalm 34, verse 9 and 10, Fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there's no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. So what's the priority? Fearing him. Fearing him all of the time. Fearing God. Fearing the power He has to strip us, to remove from us the things we take for granted. Fear the Lord. It could not be more plain. Oh, oh, that doesn't sound very gospel-oriented. That sounds a little um, uh, kind of harsh or uh, (laughs) un-Christ-like. This is the Word of Christ to your soul. Fear the Lord, ye His saints. Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Those that walk in true righteousness, who live with an eye to God's glory and dependence upon His mercy and grace. Turn for a moment to Matthew 6, just to refresh your memories as to the teaching of our Lord in relation to this. And I, I... I was very tempted not to turn here because it's so well known and so obvious. But I thought, no, no, I cannot, I can't, I can't let such an important passage be ignored just because of familiarity. Matthew 6, 24, Sermon on the Mount. No man can serve two masters, for either either he will hate the one Love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? I just need to stop there because you read that and you say, well, hang on, he has just said, in fact, in this very chapter just earlier, he, he, he's, he speaks of this. He, he gives the Lord's Prayer. And he refers to the fact that we are to pray for our daily bread. So in one place he says, pray for your daily bread. And another he says, take no thought for what you shall eat. What's he mean? What, what's, what's, what's the point? The point is this. Obviously you pray for your bread because he told you to. Pray for your bread. The point is here in this portion Stop being anxious. Stop carrying anxiety in relation to these things. So don't have anxious thoughts for your life and eating and drinking and so on. Verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Now note that. Not their heavenly Father. Your heavenly Father. Your heavenly Father. Note that. See what the Lord is saying. They had, they, they, God has made them. 
But they are not in covenant relationship with God. They don't possess this same relationship that's at the head of this prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. And yet He still, mercifully, He feeds them. And uses it to illustrate to you that you don't have to be anxious about this. He will give you what you need. So behold them. Look at them. Look at the fowls of the air who can't sow and reap and gather into barns. But your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, I hope you can say that tonight. I hope He's your heavenly Father. I hope you're in covenant relationship because if you're not, you have, you have no right to the benefits, no right to the privilege or the comfort of this language. The comfort is to those who know He is mine. He is ours, I should say. Our heavenly Father. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he, shall he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith, therefore take no thought, again, no anxious thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things did the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There, Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Quit with the anxiety. Stop with the worry. Even in the things I've just said, in the, 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 the reminder of the fact that things can change so quickly that, that there could be a change in the provision of food and so on in this country, the anxiety comes when we believe that it is the American machinery and the commercial powers of the nation that sustain us. And that's not true. It is God. It is God. And when we remember that, we don't have reason to be anxious. It's God. The machinery, these are all just second causes. The various forms of provision, the things that we are blessed with in our day and age, these are just secondary issues. They are not the true source of our provision. But we are taught, therefore, every day, give us day by day our daily bread. Give us what we need for each day. So this is something to pray every day, something to be aware of every day, something to be conscious of every day, not to forget, not to assume, not to leave it for occasions of, of shortcoming, but always dependent on His provision. Now, beloved, that's so simple, but we forget it, and we forget it because we don't know how fragile we are. You get up in the morning, and you just imagine you're, you're, everything's going to be fine. You have strength, you have means, you have a larder that's relatively full, you have a bank account that you think will be able to provide everything you need. 
and it's, it, it's all it's going down to Egypt for horses, right? To use the language of Isaiah 30. It, it's, it's depending on the wrong thing. And God would teach us, our Lord Jesus would teach us in our basic form of prayer, every provision for life comes from Him. Go to Him for it. Don't neglect Him. The fragility of the body. But secondly, the ability of the body. The ability of the body. I want to build a little bit on the idea of the fact that He is sustaining our body for a purpose. Give us day by day our daily bread. Sustain us every day. Sustain these bodies of ours every day. Well, why? Well, I've touched on it already. Our primary purpose is to to glorify Him, to be used in His service. And this is clear. Our, our very bodies that are sustained by the bread that we put into them daily are, according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, they are the temples of the Holy Ghost. The temples of the Holy Ghost. Our bodies. Our bodies, therefore, are sustained as they continue as temples of the Holy Ghost. Paul speaks of that in the context of arguing against turning our bodies into instruments of sin, committing fornication. And yet all sin ought to be avoided, not just fornication. All sin ought to be avoided because the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And to pray for bread, to sustain the body, and then give that body to sin, is to misuse the provision of God. You think of a parent, grandparent, says to the child, says to the grandchild, I'll cover all your tuition, college. I know you want to do medicine, no, it's going to be expensive, it's going to be six figures of some description, $200,000, whatever. I'll cover it. And then to find that 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 child or that grandchild has misused those funds, has taken that lump sum that was meant for tuition and just wasted as the prodigal in riotous living. How grieved might that parent or grandparent be, and rightly so. And so it is for us as the people of God to pray for our daily provision to sustain our bodies, that they might be used in holy service, that the abilities of our bodies to be first temples of the Holy Spirit that are then utilized and bring glory to our God and making much of Christ to then not do that. It is a crime far worse than the young person who wastes $200,000 or whatever may have been given. Far worse. The young need to keep this in mind. All of us do, but the young especially, because there is such ability in the body for good and for ill in youth. You need to learn, young person, 
to present your body. As Romans 12 exhorts, you present it a living sacrifice. You present your body that is being sustained by the bread that you eat daily. You present it. You return it. You hand it over. You commit it. You surrender it to your God. That it might be used in holy service. Yes, how fragile the body is. There's a fragility there, but there's an inability. And God gives us day by day our daily bread that it might be used for Him. And so there's, there's our works do follow us, you know. Our works, our lives, as we live them for Him. As we take the bread into our bodies and then use the bodies as they are fueled by God to serve Him or not. Oh, may the Lord help us as we pray this to realize that as He provides, there is, there is a right response to give our bodies, fueled by God, back to Him. Repentance. There's not just reliance here. There's also repentance. And I use repentance as the overarching idea that is found at the beginning of verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Repentance is a little narrow, I'll grant you that, but certainly the theme is, is involved. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Again, there's a lot that can be said here. A few weeks back, I dealt with a message on forgiveness, 70 times 7, at the prayer meeting. Told you then I couldn't deal with everything relating to forgiveness, and it's the same tonight. I can't expound everything relating to forgiveness. But let us look at a number of things. First, as we look at this petition, forgive us our sins. Taking that first part first, forgive us our sins. We know first, ongoing sin in the life of the believer. The reality of ongoing sin in the life of the believer, that is put before you. That's one of the most obvious things to note. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. What's interesting is that this petition is, begins with a conjunction that connects it with what goes before. And forgive us our sins. It's, it's a reminder that, that just as you need your bread daily, following on for that, there is a need. I would suggest to you with the conjunction there is implied that sense of daily seeking for forgiveness. Such is the reality of sin, the ongoing experience of sin in the life of the believer. This petition immediately shatters any notion that God's people do not seek ongoing pardon for sin from God. Now, it amazes me that that would even enter into anyone's head, that it would exist in the Christian church that some think there's no need to ask for forgiveness. Once you have come to Christ, there is no ongoing demand to seek forgiveness from God. How obvious it is that this prayer, once rehearsed daily in the households of the vast majority in the West, never gets an utterance anymore. 
You could never come to that conclusion if we still prayed this prayer as our forefathers used to do. We need daily forgiveness. And that is obvious. You can't come to any other conclusion when you read the experience of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. This man of God, this saint of God, this apostle of Christ, this missionary to the Gentiles, this mighty individual knew that despite the delight he had in the law, in the inward man, the renewed man, the regenerate, the man that possessed life within his being, was confronted every moment of every day with a law in the members. His body, his flesh, and he feels a captivity which is brought by it, a war going on in his experience. He is struggling. He struggles with sin still. And we look at that and we say, how could it be? How could Paul struggle with sin? But he does. And then you read this and you, you see, you see, well, we could have expected it. Our Lord gave the form of prayer, forgive us our sins. As I say already, there's the expectation, I think, and forgive us our sins. Like, just like you need daily bread, so you need daily forgiveness. Now think of who he's talking to here. He is not speaking to little infants that don't know the first thing. These are the people that are going to lead the church. This is Peter and James and John and the rest of the apostles. These are the men that need to understand and, and pray in this fashion. Forgive us our sins. Every day. There is a reality then by these words reminding us of the ongoing reality of sin in the life of the believer. But our Lord is instructing His disciples. He is instructing you that you can get your sin dealt with. You can. There's an answer for it. You're encouraged to pray because as He understands the battle that wages in the life of His people, He gives them the answer. He doesn't leave them in the dark. He doesn't leave them feeling a sense that there's no way out and there's no relief 
I'm going to live in this constant warfare, this tension and battle that destroys my sense of joy. No! As Paul realized and he got to it at the end of Romans 7, he knew he, he could thank God that through Jesus Christ he could be delivered from the body of this death. There's a measure of deliverance that can be enjoyed. And certainly there's no need for ongoing, let's say, uh, feelings of utter despair. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. So he is in telling us, you can be forgiven. And what does he mean to, to say we can be forgiven? But it has here the idea simply, I mean, if you look at, in your Greek New Testament, forgive us, Translate it in different ways and has different usages, but, but it's, it's quite simple. It has the idea of sending away. Send away our sins. Send them away. Put them away from you, Lord, first and foremost, and from us. This is what the Jew was reminded of on every day of atonement. He was reminded once a year in very vivid imagery, that as God dealt with sin, it wasn't just the expunging of it. There was the carrying away of it. One animal's taken in, slain, its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in the holiest of all, and another is taken out, the scapegoat, to run away so that they can vividly in clear and uncertain terms, see that as the priest laid his hands there in the transfer of guilt to that creature and was sent away, that's the kind of forgiveness offered through Christ. Sending away the sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, we need this. We need it. Christian, you need it. You need forgiveness. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something. Listen to me. One of the greatest dangers is, is deceit of our own hearts. Self-deception. I think we should all fear self-deception as much as anything else. As much as the devil. Fear self-deception. That is to imagine yourself to be something that you're not. Or to be in a place... For example, like a person that imagines them, themselves to be a child of God and they're not. I mean, that's something to fear, for sure. But another thing that we should be aware of is the possible self-deception in relation to our spiritual state as God's people. And to know whether or not we are backslidden is, is an important thing to be conscious of. Am I backslidden? Have I fallen spiritually from Christ? Have I? How do you weigh that? How do you measure it? How do you determine? Some of you have professed faith in Christ for years. Is it possible for a Christian to, to decay in fellowship? Of course. None of us would deny it. Is it possible for that to go on for years, never mind months and weeks? 
Yes, I believe so. So how might I determine whether that has happened? This isn't the only way. It may not even be the best way, but it's certainly a way. And in some ways it may be the easiest way to determine whether or not you're in a backslidden condition. It is by this. The absence of seeking daily forgiveness from God. Jesus says that we are to pray this way. Forgive us. I think the absence of praying in such a fashion is at least one mark that we have drifted. If we were really spiritual, we wouldn't even need to be told to pray this way. Because the spiritual man is very much aware of his sin. And the spiritual man who's aware of his sin will repent of it. I think that's logical. You can follow that. Therefore, if I do not see sin in my life, or if I see it, but I won't seek forgiveness, there is a spiritual problem. So I say to you, perhaps, the easiest way to determine a backslidden condition is in the absence of seeking daily forgiveness. So some of you, you may have to wake up tonight to the reality that you're far away from God or at least not as close as you'd like to believe yourself to be. This is no joke, believer, this, this matter of praying this way. And I say many have messed up at this point. Their spiritual life goes downwards because they do not pray. Forgive us. Put away our sins every day. Put away our sins, Lord. Put away our sins. I don't think you can be truly thankful until you have been sincerely penitent. And I think it's necessary daily. I believe the Lord is teaching us that. And I know there'll be some voices out there that would say, well, that's, that's very negative. That's a, that's a negative form of spirituality. Dwelling on sin, confessing sin. It's all very negative. It's all very dark. That's a lie. It's a lie. You know, when I, when I hear that, I think of Proverbs 14.9. Fools make a mock at sin. Fools make a mock at sin. The wise man, he never makes a mock at sin. Ever. It's the one thing that will separate him from God forever. And so he must have it put away. He must. He must. Oh, let me tell you, Christian, if I feel in my ministry to drive you away from the folly of sin or from the folly of making a mock at sin, I have failed gravely. 
I must impart to you, by God's grace and strength, I must impart to you a sober mind in relation to sin. Not least because our Lord Jesus teaches us, forgive us our sins. Every day, He wants us to pray this way. And I know in an age of self-esteem, you know, we want to build up self-esteem and this doesn't help. It's seen as contradictory to deal with sin and the need for forgiveness is is militant against a sense of self-esteem. And I'm always bewildered by that. I am. I mean, I get what they're trying to get at, but they they so so don't know the gospel. You're so, so confused. You're so confused. It is people who make a focus of self-esteem that are the most unstable. The people who make an emphasis on repentance and true faith in Christ, they are the ones who have peace. You don't have to talk about self-esteem. <laughs> it doesn't even come into their heads. They're not thinking about what others think about them or what they think about themselves. They just they, they know how God thinks about them. I'm a righteous sinner, but Christ. But God who is rich in mercy. And they get there. It's not self-esteem. It is seeking forgiveness. It is deep repentance. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, I, I, I would love to spend more time there. and Maybe sometime I will deal with the whole, whole garbage of the self-esteem mantras. But I'm telling you here, if you can pray this way, forgive us our sins, you won't have a problem with self-esteem. You won't. If you get this petition and pray it before God, you will not have a problem with self-esteem. Let me sum up here the importance of this prayer in the quotation that I have used before that was spoken by the Scottish Presbyterian Thomas Chalmers. We sometimes think of holiness as likeness to Christ, and it is. Holiness is likeness to Christ. But you know as well as I do that I can never be exactly like Jesus Christ. So how then can I progress in holiness? How can I progress in what this prayer is concerned with, sin in my life. How can I progress there? And Chalmers said, holiness is but quick repenting. And it has always been very helpful to me. I think, yes, holiness is Christ-likeness, true, but I can't measure that. I can't get there. I can't attain there to any degree. I really can't. Endeavoring to be like Christ, endeavoring to walk as He walked, I, I measure it and I say, I don't. I, I don't do it. I cannot do it. But I can in some way see how rapidly do I repent? How quickly do I confess my sin? How readily and how easily do I accept the fact I need to confess sin? And if I'm quick there, if I'm speedy there, I'm probably walking close with the Lord. I'm probably growing in sanctification. Whereas if I'm hesitant and reluctant and negligent in this, I'm probably wandering. There's also here not only ongoing sin in the life of the believer, but ongoing sin in the lives of other people. And he says then, For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. As sweet as the promise of forgiveness is in this petition, our Lord causes many to stumble because He appears to pair it with a responsibility. That is, if we desire forgiveness, we must forgive. Now, 
that's not exactly what's being said. Because if we take that at face value, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with works righteousness. I'm only forgiven because I forgive. That's not what it's saying. So it cannot say that. However, however, there is a clear way in which how we forgive ties in as an evidence of grace in our lives. If we truly are forgiven, then we are going to endeavor to forgive others. We are. In some ways, it's a little like what's being prayed here and what's being referred to is a little like verse 13. Go down to verse 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? There's a little bit of that involved, I think, in this. That we forgive those that are indebted to us. We can do that. The unregenerate do this. Many times. Many of the unregenerate, they're capable of doing this. How much more will God forgive us? There's an element of that involved. We can depend upon God forgiving us because even us, amidst our evil, know how to forgive those indebted to us. But there's also a tying in here, an expectation, expectation. And again, go back to Matthew 6. I know time is running out and I'm probably going to have to just leave it here with this point. But Matthew chapter 6. We see what our Lord teaches again there. Matthew 6. And he has given his account of the Lord's Prayer in this portion to the end of verse 13. And then verse 14. Matthew 6, 14. If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There is a tying in there. Undoubtedly. We avoid works righteousness, but we accept the evidence of grace. So I can say that I'm a believer, forgiven by God, and yet if I withhold forgiveness from others, I, I question it. I put it up for questioning. Now this whole subject, as I, I am well aware, is huge. And I know, does this mean that I have to give Forgiveness to every wrong, does this mean that I can never seek any recourse for wrongdoing? And all sorts of questions like these arise. We have to be very careful with this. Let me just say that. We have to be very careful. And there is a certain spirit that has to be existing in our hearts. I read it last night with our with the family, with the children. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love. That is, charity is manifested by the person who covers transgression. But he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. He manages to create a wedge even between those who are close and have a bond. We see transgression, sometimes against ourselves, and it is right for us to endeavor to cover it. 
Now, there are some things that must be revealed. I get it. I understand it. I'm not going to go through all the various things that could be dealt with. But despite our limitations and despite, let's say, some caveats, we are to reflect what God has done for us. We are. We are. Ephesians 4 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, we can't always forgive to the point of full reconciliation. There's a lot more involved there. I may want to reconcile, they may not. It, it, it's, it's hard. But I want to just note here before I finish. Four things that are important here as you read this text, all right? We also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Keep that in mind. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to pray. Note this. To forgive is to renounce feelings of animosity. That's the first thing. To forgive is to renounce feelings of animosity. They must be renounced. They have to be. There's no forgiveness while we're harboring ill will. Secondly, to forgive is to abandon ideas of revenge. You can't be harboring ideas of revenge and saying you're forgiven. You can't. So to forgive is to abandon ideas of revenge. Third, to forgive is to welcome advances of reconciliation. Someone seeking to reconcile, longing to reconcile, we, if truly forgiving, we will welcome those advances. Fourth, to forgive is to alleviate concerns of resentment. This is what Joseph did when his brothers, when Jacob died and they're all concerned, now Joseph is going to get his own back and he alleviated any concern in their minds, any feelings that he harbored resentment. Time is gone. So let's bring this to a close. Let, let, let me simply add this, end this way. Can you pray these petitions? Yes, you want God's name to be hallowed. If you do, you should be working towards the hallowing of his name. Do you desire his kingdom to come? Then you should be so laboring as to bring it in. Do you long that his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? Then so manifest that by obedience in your life. Do you wish for daily provision in all needs? Then pray. Give us day by day our daily bread and realize that the strength that is received from that and the opportunity of time and talent makes it incumbent on you to apply it to His glory. And when you come to the language of forgiveness, forgive us our sins. Mark it. 
You should hesitate. You should hesitate. Seeking forgiveness from God and imagining you have it if you withhold forgiveness from others. I think in this language there's that little bit of what the Lord, you know, He would have us just to stop. You know, before you throw in your lot with Christ, you have to see, am I really prepared to deny myself and take up the cross daily and follow Him? No man who builds a tower does so without first sitting down and counting the cost. You know, this is Luke 14, we'll get to that. And there's an element of, if I really desire forgiveness from God, I must freely offer forgiveness to those who have wronged me. There is no place for holding on to it. You want... We all want to follow Christ and say we're Christians and we all love what He has done for us until it starts to <laughs> just grate against the comfort. It starts to ask things of us that are hard. If I don't preach in such a way that asks hard things of you, then you would be left wondering, why did these people ever leave Jesus? Why when we read this, all these thousands of people just walk away from him? Because he made it plain. There are demands placed upon disciples. And to our peril, we ignore them. Every day, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. May God help us. Let's bow together in prayer. have amazing ways of defending our reluctance to forgive. We cannot reconcile with everyone because not everyone will be reconciled to us. But let us do all in our power for the honor of Jesus Christ. Let us see in the cross what Christ is doing in order to make possible not only just not only reconciliation between men, but reconciliation between God and men. There is a gulf, insurmountable, and He bridges it by the shedding of His blood. The gulf that exists between men ought to be even easier to bridge. Let us do what's in our power. Our Father, we come to Thee thee tonight 
We pray that Thou wilt graciously support us amidst our weakness. We thank Thee for these petitions and for the instruction that they give and the places where they lead in prayer before Thee. God of mercy on us. We are a proud people. We have, we are so filled with our pride. God, deliver us. Deliver us from every fiber of pride, every remnant of pride. Give us such humility of heart that it's easy to forgive because no matter how wronged we are, we always see that our wrong against God is so infinitely worse. What others have done to us is almost as nothing. Give us such an understanding of our forgiveness through Christ and a desire to manifest and show to the world our indebtedness to God by forgiving them when they're indebted to us. Should there be some here tonight without Christ have mercy on their souls, may even this prayer expose their unbelief and their hypocrisy and save them, we plead with thee. Go with us all, bless our fellowship in the moments as we close. Be with all those that go downstairs for fellowship and take us into this week empowered by the Spirit to live for Thee. Bless the food to us downstairs and may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.